Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, December 15th, 2022. My plan is that we will not be studying together a week from tonight, December 22nd. We plan to be out of town, but we will resume the Thursday after that, December 29th, and then continuing, hopefully consistently. But since we will not be together a week from tonight, this evening I'd like to share with you two pieces that relate to this week's Torah portion, the Parsha of Vayeshev, and also two pieces that relate to next week's Torah portion, the Parsha of Miketz. At the beginning of our portion by Yeshev, Yaakov says to his son Yosef, your brothers are shepherding the flocks. Go find them and see how they're doing. So Yosef sets out and he knows where he thinks they are, but he does not find them where he thought they would be. Vayim ehu ish. And a man found him. Vihine toebasadet. Yosef is kind of lost, trying to find his brothers. And this man who is there finds him. Vayishoelu. The man says to Yosef, what are you looking for? Yosef says, I'm looking for my brothers. And the man says, I heard your brothers say one to another, let's go move the flocks to Dosan, a different place. So if you go to Dosan, you'll be able to find your brothers. Yosef followed the directions of this man, and he found them in Dosan. Michael Karasik wrote an article where he says that he likes to call this man, they went that away, guy. Because this man is really the root of the whole story. Because if Yosef did not find his brothers, then his brothers would not have a chance to plot to kill him and then to decide to sell him to Egypt. And then Yosef would not have been in Egypt to interpret Paro's dream. And then there would have been a famine in Egypt as well as in Israel. And then Yaakov and his sons would not have gone down to Egypt. They would not have grown into a great nation there and be enslaved and then be freed. And at Pesach, there'd be no story to tell. All because there was one guy who was in the right place at the right time who said they went that away. And the whole story is a result of that direction. Who was this man? Rashi, the famous medieval commentator, says it was a malach, it was an angel. The malach Gabriel, Gabriel the angel. 
a malach sent by God, obviously, in order to have this narrative unfold in its very strange, circuitous, painful, dramatic manner the way God wanted it to do. So God sent his angel Gabriel to make sure that it would happen the way God wanted. The Ramban, Nachmanides, has a different opinion. The Ramban says it was a man, ish, a man. Which man? Some man. A man who happened to be standing there and happened to overhear the brothers when they were talking about where to move their flocks of sheep and then happened to encounter Yosef who asked him where they are and he gave the answer. But the point is this man had no idea that God was actually using him to start the whole progression of the unfolding of a story that's going to lead to the slavery in Egypt and then the redemption from Egypt. This was a man going about his own business who was also unwittingly going about God's business. And this shows us that we have to be open to when a malach, an angel, appears in our life. And we have to be open to the message that he or she brings to us because anybody could be a malach, which literally means a messenger from God, whether they know it or not. Anybody. So we've got to be ready to hear that message. And the other lesson to take away from what the Ramban is saying is that this kind of angel, this kind of miracle, this natural kind where a person, not even realizing the significance of what he's doing, has ha simply happens to do something or say something that causes something as part of God's plan, that's not something that might happen to us. That is also something that we may cause. When you give a stranger directions, when you, I don't know, step aside and let someone else go before you, you may be doing an unwitting miracle on your own. Any one of us could be performing some miracle on God's behalf without ever realizing it. So let me share with you this incredible story that I heard from Rabbi Shlomo Riskin. Rabbi Shlomo Riskin heard this story from the pilot, the Israeli Air Force pilot to whom this happened. This was three years after the Six-Day War, so this is about 1970, and Syria began serious provocations against the northern part of Israel. And so this pilot, he was a fighter pilot, he was ordered to fly his plane at 
supersonic speed, but very, very low over the main business section of Aleppo, the, one of the major cities in Syria. And the idea was, by flying this plane so fast and so low over this dense populated area, it would be a warning to the Syrian government as well as to the population, don't mess with us. So this pilot carried out his mission. He was successful. And Syria got the message. The provocation stopped. Okay. Ten years later, this pilot is now a civilian back in Israel. And he was driving from Haifa to Tel Aviv, and he picks up a hitchhiker who is in an IDF uniform, an Israeli soldier. So they start to talk. He's a former Air Force pilot. The younger person is currently in Sahal in the IDF, Israel Defense Force. And the older man learns that his passenger was a Syrian Jew whose family had made Aliyah by walking all the way from Aleppo, which was one of the major Jewish centers going back millennia. They had walked from Aleppo to Israel and made Aliyah about 10 years ago. And so this young soldier tells the story of how that came to be. He tells this older man, he's never seen this older man, he tells this older man, I had just been bar mitzvah when one night an Israeli plane flew over the business section of Aleppo right near our home and the supersonic boom was deafening. It scared everybody. And the glass and the front of all the stores broke caused a lot of damage. No one was hurt, but it caused a lot of damage. All the glass shattered. But there was a miracle that night because it was only the glass windows of the Syrian stores that broke. The glass stores of all of the Jewish stores did not break. It was a miracle. How could it be? The Syrian stores, the glass breaks. The Jewish stores, the glass doesn't break. It was a miracle. And as a result of that miracle, he says, my father decided, that's a sign from God. We got to get out of here. It's time for us to move to Israel. And so they started walking to their homeland. And many other families also made Aliyah at that time. And that was this pilot who's driving the car. He was the one that flew the plane. So you have this Israeli Air Force pilot who is clearly a malach. He's an angel. But of course, there is a logical reason for what happened. Although the people, the Jews in, in, in Aleppo didn't realize it. And the logical reason is as follows. The Syrians 
did not allow Jews to own stores on the main streets. Jews were only allowed to own stores on the side streets. When the airplane flew, it flew low, directly parallel to the main street. So it was the glass in the stores along the main street that broke not the glass on the stores on the side streets, which just happened to mean that it was the glass of the Syrian stores that broke and the glass of the Jewish stores did not break. A completely logical answer, but something that was considered to be a miracle by the Jews at that time in Aleppo. And because of that, they made Aliyah. They moved to Israel. And of course, at the time... Ten years earlier, the pilot had no idea of the full effect of his miracle. But he was a malach. He was an angel. And he was the one chosen by God to carry out this mission to help that community move safely to Israel. Any one of us, every one of us can be an angel and perform miracles. I must tell you a second story. I heard it this week. It's incredible. I heard this story from Rabbi Zalman Vyshetsky. And it refers to something that happened a number of years ago in Los Angeles, California. A number of years ago in Los Angeles, California, there was an earthquake not devastating, God forbid no one was hurt, but it caused a lot of damage. Books fell down, furniture broke, walls cracked. There was quite a lot of damage throughout Los Angeles, including at a certain shul, a synagogue, on Pico Boulevard, which, as you know, is like the main drag of one of the main Jewish communities there. And in this shul, everything was messed up. All the sidurim and chumashim fell on the floor. The bookcases fell over. The furniture was broken. Everything was, uh, glass was broken. Everything was up and down and moved around, just like everywhere else in Los Angeles. But it happened at the moment that this took place, which was relatively late in the evening, at that moment, there was only one person in the shul, one young man, only one young man by himself, who happened to be studying Torah in the shul. And he felt and he saw the books breaking and the glass breaking and the furniture turned over and the whole place is a mess. So he's by himself. It's late at night. He decides he's going to return everything to its proper place. And he spends a number of hours, all night long. He picks up the books. He makes the furniture back in the right place. He sweeps up the broken glass. And all night long he's working. And finally, in the early morning, he's got the place back put together. It looks like nothing happened. And so, when the men came to shul in the morning to daven for shachris, they came for the morning service early in the morning, they came 
and they saw, they knew that there was widespread damage throughout the city, but they come into their shul and they see a miracle. A miracle, nothing happened. The whole city had destruction and breakage and in our shul, nothing happened. Not a book was out of place, not a piece of glass was broken, not a spot of dirt on the floor. It's a miracle. So at first, this young man thought to himself, Maybe I should tell them. It's not a miracle. I was here and I spent all night long and I cleaned it up. If you would have saved, if you would have been here, you would have cleaned it up. It'd be the same thing. It's no miracle. But then he stopped himself. And he said to himself, they did encounter a miracle. And the miracle is me. And this is a profound, profound lesson. Because what this means is every one of us can be the miracle in the life of someone else. It can happen behind the scenes. No one may know about it. No one may ever learn about it. But we can take the responsibility when we see a situation. We can take the action to become the miracle in someone else's life. On Hanukkah, we celebrate that a Kohen decided to take what was only a small jar of oil and to light it, even though it was only enough for one night, but it lasted eight days. We don't even know the name of that coat, but he performed a miracle. He was an angel. He may not have realized it. Every one of us can be an angel and perform a miracle in someone else's life. Second piece I'd like to share with you. Some of our greatest heroes in the Torah have dis a descriptive word associated with their name. For example, we commonly refer to Moshe Rabbeinu, which means Moshe, our teacher. Ima Rachel, or Mama Rachel. Rachel, our mother. Aharon HaKohen, Aharon the priest. Of course, he was the first Kohen, but there were other Kohanim. Now, there are no instructions to call these individuals by these names with the extra word added to it. And these names, by the way, do not appear anywhere in the Torah. Nowhere in the Torah does it say Moshe Rabbeinu, Moshe our teacher. It's just that these names have come to be. And there's one more that comes from our Torah portion, Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef the Righteous. In rabbinic literature, it's very, very common. When we're talking about Yosef, we use the phrase Yosef HaTzadik, Yosef the Righteous. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu, I understand. He taught us the Torah. Aharon Kohen, I understand. He was the first Kohen. Yosef HaTzadik, Joseph, 
the righteous? Well, not sure I understand that. Looking at the sweep of Yosef's life, it's not immediately obvious why that description is appropriate. At the beginning of our Torah portion, we meet Yosef when he's 17 years old. He's arrogant. He's a coddled favorite son. He criticizes and tattles on his brothers. Later in next week's Torah portion, the parish of Miketz, when he does finally become ruler second in command in Egypt, only below Paro, there's a very disturbing narrative where he manipulates his brothers, accusing them of being spies, having them think that he is going to punish them until he finally reveals himself. I'm not sure that's exactly the kind of person we would refer to, we would describe as a tzaddik, as a righteous person. The title Yosef HaTzaddik comes from the narrative at the end of this week's Torah portion. Yosef was sold by his brothers into slavery. He was sent down to Egypt. He was put to work in the home of Potiphar. And Potiphar's wife is attracted to him. And the Torah tells us Yosef is tempted to being seduced by this woman. But the Torah says, Vayimo'en, but Yosef refused. He withstood that temptation. And that is the definition of a tzaddik. A tzaddik, a righteous person, is not one who is so holy and so pure as to never be tempted. If that were true, almost no one would ever qualify. Rather, a tzaddik is one who is tempted, but withstands that temptation. And of course, that's very significant for us because that puts being a tzaddik within our reach because all of us are tempted. The question is, how did Yosef do it? How was, able, how was Yosef able to withstand what was a very, very intense temptation? And how can we do it? when we are faced by temptation, any kind of temptation. So Rashi gives us the famous answer of our rabbis at that moment that he felt the temptation to give in to the seduction of this woman. He saw in his mind's eye the image of his father. And he reminded himself his father would disapprove. His father would be disappointed. His father did not teach him to give in to immorality. And he resisted. Listen to how Sivan Rahav Meir explains this. Every parent knows deep down this very challenging truth. 
we will not always be standing next to our child to give them a hand, to give them advice. Real parenting is not when we are speaking to them directly and we say to them, this is right and this is wrong. Real parenting is about our influence over our children years and years later. Because there will come a time when we will have to let go of our children and trust them and let them move on, let them go on their own. And then will come the test of our parenting. In a moment of doubt and crisis, Yosef recalled his mother and his father, recalled their values, recalled their home, and they served him as a moral compass. The test of parenting is not when the parents are around. The true test of parenting is when we become for our children and our grandchildren an image, a memory that a child or a grandchild can recall at a critical moment of moral choice. And that image that will stay with a child is not likely to be what we have said to that child. It is more likely to be what we have done in the presence of that child all those years ago. Rabbi Shamshan Rafal Hirsch writes, all the lectures given do not make an impression on the child as much as the living example that he sees with his parents and his grandparents. We must instruct and more importantly model for our children and our grandchildren what it means to be moral, to live with an awareness of God's constant presence, to resist inappropriate temptation so that we can continue to influence them when they are no longer in our physical proximity. This is one of the important ways that we ourselves can become a tzaddik, a righteous person, and how we can help our children and our grandchildren to become a tzaddik, a righteous person. <clears throat> there could not be a greater contrast between Yosef in this week's Torah portion, the parsha of, of, of Vayeshev, versus Yosef in next week's Torah portion, the parsha of Miketz. In our Torah portion this week, Yosef is a coddled, privileged, arrogant, belittled teenager. In Miketz, next week's Torah portion, all of a sudden, he becomes wise, he takes charge, he's the leader who impacts not only his own family, but mighty nations are all following his leadership and his instructions. 
What is the key to this dramatic, sudden transformation in Yosef's life? Sivan Rahab Meir pinpoints it to a very specific moment, a turning point in Yosef's life. It's at the very end of this week's Torah portion. After the incident with Potiphar's wife, Yosef is sent to prison. And during his time in prison, we cannot even imagine what he must have felt like. He was a maternal orphan. His mother had died. He hadn't seen his father in many years. His brothers were going to kill him and ended up selling him into slavery. And now he's in prison for something he did not do. He has every reason in the world to be sad, to be self-centered, to be narcissistic, to simply dwell on all of his misfortunes. But at that moment, there are two Egyptian former ministers also in prison with him. And Yosef says the following very surprising words to them. Vayishal esrisei paro asher yitoba mishmar beisadonov lemar It happened one morning. Yosef said to these other two men, who were with him in prison, Why do you look so sad today? What's wrong? You look upset. You look sad. Why are you sad? Tell me what's wrong. Now, of course, we know the rest of the narrative. That leads to these two men telling him a dream that they each had. Yosef interprets that dream, and this is what is going to eventually get Yosef out of prison, bring him to the attention of Paro, be able to interpret Paro's dream in next week's Torah portion of Miketz, give the advice to Paro as to how to protect against the impact of the coming famine, and to become second in command in all of Egypt, and to be in a position to then be able to recognize his brothers when they come, and ultimately lead to the reunification of his family, and his reunification with his father, all of that power, all of that rising, all of that leadership, comes from one dramatic moment where Yosef did not immerse himself in self-pity, but he noticed what others around him were feeling and he wanted to help them. And this is true for every single one of us. A person can never know the effect that you will have when you say something as simple as Good morning. How are you today? 
Here's an example of this in real life to which we can aspire. A number of years ago here in Montreal, one of the greatest Torah scholars ever to live in Montreal was Ramatul Weinberg of blessed memory. He passed away a number of years ago. It was in the summer. He was spending the summer at a camp in the Catskill Mountains in New York. That morning he didn't feel well. He had chest pains. He told the Hatzala workers who were there, they took him to the hospital. The doctors worked on him in the ER for several hours. Meanwhile, the Hatzala workers called his wife, who was then in New York. She wasn't at the camp with him. And they called for her to come to the hospital. She came, and she was waiting in the waiting room. Ramatul passed away without ever regaining consciousness while still in the emergency room. And the Hatsala worker had to go out into the waiting room and tell his wife, Rebetzin Weinberg, that her husband had passed away and he did not know what to say, especially since, first of all, he died very young. He was not even 60 years old. It was completely unexpected. She had not been with him. She had not been able to say farewell, to say any final words to him. And this Hatsala worker, this young man, anguished over how to break the news. I have been in that kind of a situation. And I can tell you how terrible it is. You feel like you would rather be anywhere else in the world rather than to have to give that news. Finally, this Hatzala worker sits down next to her, Rebetzin Weinberg, and says simply, I'm so sorry. Your husband, the rabbi, passed away. And she's silent. Five seconds, ten seconds. And finally, she looks at him and she says, It must have been very hard for you to give me this news. That's a woman who has created a legacy of putting the needs of others before her own. And when Yosef was able to summon that characteristic, it transformed his life. And if we can summon it, it will transform our lives as well. One last message for tonight. Rabbi Shlomo ben Yitzchak Rashi is the classic commentator to the Torah. It is so important for us to study the Torah with Rashi's commentary. Often Rashi will write something that is very simple. 
it's almost as if it's obvious. His words seem not to add anything to what we already know. And that's when we really have to pay attention and to read carefully and to ask ourselves, what's bothering Rashi? By the way, that's the title of a very, very good set of books. You may find it one day. I urge you to get it. What's bothering Rashi? To examine why does Rashi write these words? What is the deeper meaning of what Rashi is saying, even though it appears to be so simple? What is Rashi trying to teach us? So here's an example. The beginning of next week's Torah portion, Miketz, Paro has a dream. He dreams that there are seven fat cows beside the river and there are seven skinny cows that come beside them And the skinny cows swallow the fat cows, but the skinny cows remain skinny. By Yikatz Paro, and Paro wakes up. And then he has another dream with a similar metaphor. So let's try to understand this because we know Yosef is going to come and he's going to interpret the dream. You have seven cows that are yefos mara, beautiful appearance, ubrios basar, robust flesh. And then you have seven other cows that are ugly, they're gaunt, and they consume the beautiful, robust cows. So, Yosef interprets that the first seven cows represent the seven years of abundance. Seven years, there will be plenty. But that will be followed by seven years of famine, represented by the second set of cows, the skinny cows. And most of the commentaries understand that the metaphor has to do with a correlation between the cows and the Egyptian economy because it was an agricultural society. So well-being is defined in terms of the livestock. Seven fat cows mean years of plenty. Seven skinny cows means years of famine. Okay, that makes sense. But that's not what Rashi says. Listen carefully to what Rashi says, and then let's try to figure out what does he mean to teach us. Rashi says, Yefos Mare, the fat cows of beautiful appearance. Rashi says, Simanhu, Limehasova. This is a sign that during the years of plenty, Shahabrios Niros Yafos Zuluzu, that each person will appear good to the other. She'ain ein beriat sarabachaverta. No one will look negatively at his or her fellow. What's going on? What, what's the symbolism? What's the metaphor?
Rashi understands that sova does not only refer to abundance. The fatness of the cows is not just how much they have. And it's not referring to how much will grow during these seven years of plenty. It refers rather to contentment. And not of the, of, of the cows, not of the agriculture, but of the people. Rashi means to tell us that the message of the dream is that in the first seven years, people will have a different state of mind. People will look at each other and they'll see someone else being successful and they'll be happy for them. Very often, even if I have as much as I need, even if I have more than I need, I still feel a little twinge of something when you are very successful a little jealousy, a little envy. But to be able to live in a state of mind where someone else is successful and I'm truly happy for it, that's contentment. I have what I need and I'm happy that you have what you need. And therefore, Rashi describes the first seven years not of just having lots of food, but of years of contentment. The people will look at each other in a good way. The Midrash adds the words to this Rashi, There will be a time of love and brotherhood and goodwill in the world. These years are years that are being characterized not by how much grows, but by how people look to each other. And consequently, the second seven years are not necessarily years when there's just an absence of food, but it's seven years when people start to begrudge the success of another, where people start to look, oh, why does he have so much? Why don't I have what he has? If we only evaluate ourselves by comparing them to the accomplishments of others, we will always be threatened by them. And we will never be able to rejoice in what we have, no matter how much it is. I once had a remarkable experience. I'll never forget a man who I knew well and thought very, very highly of. He had passed away. And I went to visit his family to prepare for the funeral. And I was speaking to his children. And his children said to me, when we were growing up, we were poor. We did not know we were poor because our parents didn't look at what others had. It just was not part of their mindset. So we never knew we were poor because we were focused on what we had and we had enough. When people are in this state of mind, when people can look favorably on each other, 
it's not going to be the amount of food that will define the years of plenty. Rabbi Yochanan Zweig expresses it as follows, being happy has very little to do with how much you have and very much to do with how you feel about yourself and others. If you can feel good for the success of others, you will be content regardless of the amount you have. Now, this lesson is crucial always, but especially today. So many of our societal problems today stem from seeing the other who is different than me in a poor light, wanting to harm me, wanting to put me down. But if I could just see the best in them, if I could look for and recognize their best intentions, I would be less threatened by them. And even if we were to have some disagreement over some issue or other, it may even be an issue over which we are passionate, but it need not become volatile. Rashi shows us that being happy has very little to do with how much I have and very much to do with how positively and generously I can feel about you. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a beautiful Shabbos. I look forward to seeing you soon in person. Not this coming week, December 22nd. We will not be together but hopefully with God's help, December 29th and going forward. Have a great night. Have a great Shabbos.